Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. The following is a Hoopball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. It's back to normal today on Fantasy NBA Today or Thursday, I think, edition of your Hoop Ball Daily Fantasy Podcast. I am Dan Vespers. Welcome to the the show. I was going to call it a program. Like I'm a what am I, like an 85-year-old getting ready to watch my programs? Did I record my programs? Whatever. Uh, hoop-ball.com is the website, at HoopBallFantasy, or at HoopBallTweets are the ways you can follow them on Twitter. I am at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S, on social media. And please do give me a follow, and we can chat about whatever, because that's all we have to chat about right now is is Whatever. I am going to uh, forego any political stuff on today's show. If you want to know how I feel, I'm sure you and I can discuss it. There are some pretty wild things going on in uh, in the country right now, and I would just say to please read up on it. I think you'll get the idea pretty fast of uh, which direction things are, are rolling. Um, so go check that out. We're not going to talk about it here on the show. In fact, I've thought long and hard about that idea as a whole of just whether or not I'm some sort of arbiter of decision-making on any of this stuff. And the answer I came up with is generally no. Um, I think most of you guys are, are listening to this show as kind of a respite from the uh, the daily grind. You guys know which direction I lean on pretty much all topics, out, even outside of sports, if you follow me at all on Twitter. So uh, if we want to have that conversation, we can do it certainly over there. Um we are back into the postmortems today after a uh, brief hiatus. I know we covered the Boston Celtics earlier this week. We covered Mark Cuban's proposal earlier this week. We talked a bit about some more general strategies in fantasy sports this week. And there was a tiny bit of news coming out about the NBA's return. In fact, late le- yesterday, Kind of midday, actually, yesterday. It was just just a couple hours after we put out the show on on uh, Mark Cuban's proposal. It's starting to surface, and and again, none of this stuff is substantiated yet, but it's starting to surface a little bit that the NBA is strongly considering bringing just twenty teams to Orlando to complete the season. What's somewhat lacking in this uh, rumor so far, and maybe it turns out to be the real thing, is exactly what that would mean. Is it basically the Mark Cuban proposal, but you just leave the last few teams out that really they felt didn't have much of a chance to get in anyway? Or, and we're hearing this as a possibility as well, are the 20 teams the 16 current playoff teams and then the four teams in the Western Conference that are actually closest to getting into the playoffs, meaning the Portland Trailblazers, 
the Sacramento Kings, the New Orleans Pelicans, and the San Antonio Spurs. That would leave out the 9 and 10 seeds in the Eastern Conference, which in the uh, Cuban proposal, those two teams would be part of the mix because he wanted to give the crappiest teams in the Eastern Conference a chance to continue playing. Perhaps the thought process here is that those teams in the Eastern Conference are so bad because let's let's be honest here. The only team in the Eastern Conference that's not in the playoffs that has a prayer of beating pretty much anyone inside the top 11 in the Western Conference is maybe Washington. You could argue, and I guess maybe if the Bulls got healthy and got rid of Jim Boylan, but that's a lot to ask. Washington played over their heads this year if they magically decided to play John Wall, which they've said they're not. They have this weird kind of inside straight opportunity to maybe take down a team like the I don't know the Spurs if they come in and they just sort of old man their way into a series or the Suns or something like that like I could make an argument 9 10 11 12 13 I can make an argument that the top 13 teams in the west could take care of anybody outside of the top eight in the east with almost no resistance Except maybe there's that question mark around Phoenix. Like, could Phoenix take care of Washington easily? Chicago easily? I don't know. But I I do think that they would ultimately win that series. So perhaps the thought process here is, while perhaps Mark Cuban's proposal that we talked about on yesterday's show gives reason for more teams to be interested in the four to seven game kind of play in two weeks, whatever you want to call it, meaning the Cavs, the Hawks, the Pistons, the Knicks, the Bulls, the Hornets, the Wizards, all of those teams will be playing for now the 9 and 10 spots in the Eastern Conference. What's the point, really? The Cavaliers, even if they somehow managed to get to that 10 seed, which they wouldn't, they'd get smoked immediately. Same story for the Pistons, the Knicks, the Hornets. All all of these teams would just get clobbered by the Blazers, the Pelicans, the Kings, or the Spurs, and probably even the Suns as well, out of the Western Conference. So... I think what the league is saying, if indeed this is the path they choose to go down, is, look, we could bring 28 of the 30 teams down and leave Minnesota and Golden State out of it, but among those bottom eight, which is basically everyone in the Eastern Conference that didn't, that isn't currently in the playoff picture, of those bottom eight, uh, or that's, you know, that's seven of the eight, how many of them really matter? How many of them really need to be in these final four to seven games? How many of them really need to have a shot at making whatever you want to call this weirdo postseason, if indeed there are an extra four teams that go in? Those teams have no chance of making any noise at all. Let's take the teams that have a legitimate chance to get out of the first round of the playoffs. That's probably the thought process. And then in that same process, you can remove a third of the people that you're putting into this dub, this bubble. Because remember, player safety still has to be the top priority in all of this stuff. I don't know what this means for regional TV coverage. You know, if the Pistons don't go down to Orlando, do they not... Does their 70-game deal not vest? I would assume it doesn't. If it's a regional TV contract, they need to have their specific team. Like, Fox Sports... Uh, whatever, what, what is it, Fox Sports Michigan? Fox Sports uh, Midwest? It might be Fox Sports. I forget what it was. I lived there for a couple of years, and I can't remember what it is. 
uh, I just remember that they had a song called April in the D, which is just, that was so hilarious. So if they can't cover the Pistons, I don't know, maybe they could pick up the rights to cover one of these remaining teams, like whatever the closest team geographically is to Detroit, which is, I guess, probably the Pacers or the Cavs. Cleveland or Indianapolis, those are probably about pretty close to equidistant from Detroit. Someone can fill me in on this. It might be Cleveland, actually. Uh, In fact, I think it probably is, but they're not in the playoffs, so I guess it would be Indiana. If they covered Indiana, would that be some way of getting it to vest? I I don't know. We kept hearing for basically a week that... The NBA wanted to get to that 70-game threshold, but if only 20 of the 30 teams get it, doesn't that significantly impact the the financial revenue coming in for the entire league? I, I'm thinking that there's probably going to be some kind of split that has to happen. I, I Like, I can't imagine that the Detroit Pistons franchise would just be like, yeah, okay, we'll be one of the teams that won't go. And we won't collect our tens of millions of dollars. But you guys, all you other guys, you just go ahead. We're not talking about a couple hundred grand here. We're talking about many millions of dollars. This is a really big deal. But maybe the way you get them agree to that is say, okay, if 20 teams are going, that 20 TV revenues that teams are getting by playing these extra five or six games, that's going to get split among all 30 teams. That feels like a hard thing to get owners to agree to as well. I know player safety is number one, but as we're seeing in baseball, when there's a ton of money on the line, that tends to jump over player safety just a little bit. And the NBA has done a really nice job of of presenting a unified front and doing all of their little negotiations mostly in secret, which I'm sure there's been some back and forth and probably a little bit of fighting on, on what's most important in all of this and making sure everybody gets as much money as possible. But there's going to be, there are disagreements happening, even if we're not hearing about them. So if that's what you're doing, if that if the 20 teams are going, from a player safety standpoint, it does actually make a lot of sense. You're getting the extra five games from a lot of teams, which is uh, presumably a big moneymaker. You're not overly jeopardizing player safety beyond the original, let's just play the playoffs and take the top 16 teams right now. Although you could make a pretty good argument that Removing another four teams and just going straight to the playoffs also makes a lot of sense. It sounds like the players, the teams, the league, they all want some tune-up time. So maybe that's another reason to throw another four teams into the mix. You just cash in a few extra bucks in the process. And you give NBA fans a chance to see some of their key guys. Damian Lillard would be among those those teams that are right on the bubble. Zion is on one of those bubble teams. Uh... I mean, I guess the Spurs do have a, a decent following just from years of success. They're not really superstar-laden at this point. Uh, Kings, you know, Kings need a break. They're not going to drive TV revenue, but they need a break, so throw them in there as well. And you get to 20. It's kind of like a weird little compromise between bringing everybody, only bringing 16, giving these these last four teams a chance to play for something, And then if you're actually going to put 20 teams in the playoffs, you have to do most likely something like what we were talking about on yesterday's show, which is maybe a winner-take-all first game. You know, you take those last four teams, and they're basically in a best-of-one and then a best-of-three back-to-back playoff set to get into the traditional postseason, so to speak. Uh, 
Or alternatively, you could take seeds 13 through 20. Am I getting this right? 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Yeah. And do like a best of three if you only wanted to make it one additional round. But I don't think I like that because it does punish some of these teams that were actually in the original playoff structure. I think the top eight in each conference should not be punished in any way. Basically, just guarantee that they're going to have a best of seven set in their first round of the playoffs and let these other teams deal with whatever. I, maybe you can't do that. Actually, I don't think you can do that. Roll it back. Pretend I edited this podcast and rolled that back. You can't do it. Those last couple of teams, which, as we mentioned yesterday, are Brooklyn or Orlando, if you remove the conferences, would have to play some kind of small play-in game. I don't actually really have a problem with that because those two damn teams are four and five games under 500, respectively. So if anyone's going to have to wear it a little bit, it's going to be the two teams that have no prayer of advancing very far in the playoffs as their current rosters are constructed, presuming no one comes back, meaning, you know, Kyrie, Kevin Durant, from massive injury. So that's the latest on the what the hell's the NBA going to do front, but we can move right along and get into our team of the day, which today is the Toronto Raptors. Toronto Raptors remain one of the more fun teams, I believe, across the NBA. I'll tell you why. Reason number one is is fully narcissistic because last year, not this season, last season, I put out a tweet talking about how effective the Toronto Raptors starting and bench units had been. It was during that crazy run in 2019 where the Raptors had like 14 games in their, and their starters only played in the fourth quarter in like two of them. And I put out some, I put out some tweet that was just like, oh, the Raptors, here's some stats on the Raptors and how they're incredibly underrated right now and nobody's paying attention to them. Uh, and, and local Toronto folks picked it up and kind of ran with it. It was one of those weird, like, I didn't expect this to go viral, but then it went sort of like NBA viral. So narcissistically, I love the Raptors because uh, a lot of Toronto fans and Raptors people I've, I've associated with on the internet, and they've been awesome to me. From a fantasy perspective, I love the Raptors because Nick Nurse plays his guys uh, too many minutes. Not the right amount. Too many. Kyle Lowry averaged 36 and a half minutes per game this year. I mean, you had to know he wasn't going to make it through an entire season. You had to know. Like, it's, it's, it was extraordinary. Damian Lillard averaged the most minutes per game this year at 36.9. James Harden was number two at 36.7. Kyle Lowry was number three. Freddie Van Fleet was inside the top 10. And Pascal Siakam was inside the top 10. They had three of the top 10 in minutes per game. The only other team, uh, well, two teams actually with more than one other, would be the Blazers that had Lillard and McCollum at 36 minutes or more. And the Rockets with Harden and Westbrook at 36.7. We mentioned Harden, and then Westbrook was at 35.9. The other guys inside the top 10, Ben Simmons at 35.7, Bradley Beal at 36, Devin Booker 36.1. That takes care of the top 10 in minutes per game. It actually drops off at a pretty good clip after that. Uh, Trey Young, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Devontae Graham, Drew Holiday, LeBron James. Now you're already into the 34 range. Uh, those top guys, the Raptors, 35.5, 35.8, and 36.6, not surprisingly, were ranked 19, 25, and 35 in fantasy this year. It should not come as a surprise 
that if you sort your fantasy rankings by the players who logged the most minutes per game this year, there are only two players inside the top 40 in minutes per game who were not inside the top 100 and per game production. This, by the way, and I don't know if you guys are listening to the Real Big Three podcast that uh, I do with with uh, Bogman and Jonas Nader from over at Roto World Bogman, of course, within this league. We're not doing it here during the shutdown, but Jonas Nader, one of our good friends, is a big proponent of per 36s. Bogman loves to give him a hard time because no one in the NBA actually plays 36 minutes per ball game. In fact, there were only six players this year that played 36 minutes or more per game. We're talking about them right now. So when you do a per 36, you're extrapolating to a number that generally nobody's getting to. That said, with these particular players, you basically have it. And most players in the NBA have pretty good per 36s because they'd be on the floor forever. The worst player inside the top 40 in minutes per game. The worst player in the NBA was Harrison Barnes, and it wasn't close. He played 35 minutes a game, which was uh, number 16, I believe. He's inside the top 16, and he was ranked number 164. That's how awful his fantasy game has become. The second worst was P.J. Tucker, who played the 24th highest minutes per game at 34.5, and and he was number 102. So he was actually still fantasy useful in most formats, if more of a plotter than anything else. Nobody else is behind number 77. Nope, scratch that. Excuse me. Just Andrew Wiggins at number 93, and he was actually trending back up a little bit towards the end of the year. If you play a ton of minutes you're going to have fantasy value. You can look at it from the other direction as well. You can sort by just traditional fantasy rankings and look at the top guys. Anthony Davis, 34 and a half minutes. Harden, 36.7. Kawhi Leonard, only 32.2. He's kind of the exception. Hassan Whiteside was at 31. There really aren't many guys inside the top whatever that are playing less than 31 minutes a game. In fact, if you scroll down your list... Jonathan Isaac was 29.7. Paul George at 29.1 was the 30th ranked player. That's the first player where if you round to the nearest minute, it comes out to a number under 30, and he was number 30 in fantasy. Steph Curry was 31. He played 28 minutes a game. We should remember this. By the way, Jonas Valanciunas, interestingly, is sort of the first guy who wasn't really approaching 30 minutes. And he was number 49. He was at 26 minutes. And then you start to get into some guys that actually do play in the 20s after that. You've got Mitchell Robinson, Brooke Lopez. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. was at 28. DeJounte Murray. Nerlens Noel played 18 minutes in number 73. So it does start to happen a bit more outside the top 50. But if you're looking at guys, and, and this is you know a, a strategic element to drafting, you know, you're, you're not taking guys inside the top 50 that are not expected to play more than 24 minutes a game. You, you take guys that are playing 30 minutes. It was one of the arguments against Mitchell Robinson this year. It was like, well, how many minutes is this guy really going to stay on the floor? I know he can be a top 30 guy in 25, 26 minutes a game, can he actually get to that point? And he got to 23. You need guys that are playing 30 minutes plus. That's just how it works. 
and a good fantasy stat set. It all rolls together. But let's talk about the Raptors, because that was probably your lesson to be learned from the Toronto organization, is that minutes is production. But beyond that, this is a team that played so many minutes that they ended up basically wiping out their team for stretches this year. Lowry missed... Oh, here, wait, I want to get the numbers accurately. Toronto played 64, uh, 64 games before the shutdown this year. So Lowry had missed a dozen. Van Fleet had missed 16. Siakam had missed 11. Norman Powell had missed 20. OG Ananobi had actually only missed one game. So he was uh, one of those by-the-totals big winners this year. He was number 72 per game. And Ananobi was number 45 by total, so keep that in mind as we move forward. Serge Ibaka missed 14 games. Marcus Gasol was well on his way to basically missing 30 games this year. And yet, I feel the need to talk about all seven of those guys because all seven of them, either for the entire season or for long stretches of the season, were fantasy relevant. Marcus Gasol will start at the bottom and work our way up. Marcus Gasol got off to a wretched start this year. Truly wretched start this season. He couldn't throw a stone in the ocean. Dude was basically shooting like 35% from the field for the better part of a month. It was a lot. Okay? It wasn't it wasn't a little thing. It was an awful lot. And for many of us, that was so much issue that you kind of had to figure out something else to do with him, right? Like, you couldn't trot him out there every day like that. Could you? That's a tough sell. How could you How could you legitimately trot him out like that? And then all of a sudden, and this is the magic of, you know, mean reversion, is that even if he got significantly worse from the field because he just wasn't going to be doing anything on offense and he wasn't getting anywhere near the rim. Even if he got worse, he wasn't going to get that much worse. You know, he shot 44.5% last year. He's not a great field goal percent. He haven't really been a a, a fantastic field goal percentage guy at any point during his career. But he was never going to drop from career 48 and over the last three or four seasons more like number like 45%. It was never going to drop from 45 to 35 in one offseason. His shot profile hadn't changed all that much. He wasn't attacking the rim as much. His usage was way, way down from pretty much any other point in his career. But everything else was relatively similar. You know, a few points. Probably going to get you around 10 points. In Toronto last year, he played 25 minutes a game. Had nine, six and a half, a steal, a block, a three. Four assists. Like, that wasn't going to blow anybody's doors off, but it wasn't horrible. And then this year, you figured, okay, well, things are settled. What's actually going to happen with this team? What's the plan? We didn't know, so I don't want to talk about the draft elements of Marcus Gasol. We didn't really know how many minutes he was going to play. We didn't know, with Kawhi Leonard gone, how Toronto was going to retool things. But the general feeling was, with Kawhi's 32 minutes off the board... A lot of that was going to go to wings. OG Ananobi was going to be playing more. You were probably going to see a little bit more Norman Powell, and we'll talk about how that kind of swung in a different direction. Uh, You were probably going to see a little bit more Serge Ibaka, and more Serge Ibaka sliding down was going to mean more Marcus Sewell. So I think the general assessment was that his 25 minutes were probably going to go up maybe one or two minutes. Not a lot, 
but a little bit. As you move other bodies around, there's just going to be a couple more minutes available. And that did indeed pan out. Gasol ended up averaging 27 and a half minutes per game. If you wipe out his minute restriction games, he was actually closer to 28, 29, or even 30. The problem was that nothing was going in. He was shooting the ball horribly. Nothing was going in the bucket. As that started to even out, and I, and I would implore you all to look at Marc Gasol's game log from this season. I would implore you at, to look and see when things started to turn a little bit. And it was right before he got hurt. Basically, when the calendar hit December, he hit 50% of his shots in six of seven games, hit four out of nine, and then got hurt in the next one. So he shot 50% or better in pretty much every game in December, aside for one. He had a terrible game in Philadelphia dealing with Joel Embiid. He was in foul trouble uh, for parts of that game and just didn't really get engaged on offense. But when things were going better for him during that stretch, those games were 11-5-6 with two blocks, 14-3-2 with a block, 5-6-5 with four steals and two blocks. He had a 9.9 rebound, five assists, two steal, four block game. He had a 17.15 rebound, one steal, two block game. We saw the old Marc Gasol with just no shots. We saw the old Marc Gasol, but no offensive usage, really, outside of passing. Okay, well, this takes us to the next element. I think that sorted out question one, which was, does he have anything left in the tank? And the answer was yes. He still has a pretty interesting fantasy game, and we would just love it if he actually took some shots. The other part of this equation is that his contract is up. Marcus Gasol's a free agent this coming year. He made $25.5 million this season. We don't know where he's going to be. But what I think we can assume, and this, I guess, is a little bit where per 36s start to creep in, is that he's not going to really be a high-usage guy anymore. But if somebody's willing to give him 28 to 30 minutes a game, which I'm betting someone still might, you know, he's, he's an older fella. He's been around for, sheesh, a long time. He's, he's 35 at this point. So someone's going to give him a one- or two-year deal, I would think, max. He's probably going to be looking to be a starter on some team. Or, you know, does he float into a place like Golden State on a cheap contract? It's a possibility. If he didn't have a ring, I would make that more likely. But it's still a distinct possibility. He could roll into a place like Golden State, or maybe he goes to the Lakers or something like that next year, a team that's just going to want a veteran big man that can play some still very good position defense, protect the rim because he's gigantic. Dude's 7 feet, 270. He's a monster. Uh, And play 20 minutes. In that case, you don't draft him. So we need to pay very close attention to Marcus Gasol. He could end up being a really interesting value next year if he ends up in the right spot, but that's generally a pretty big if. Next player I want to talk about is Serge Ibaka, whose season was actually kind of clunky until Marc Gasol got hurt. This is another player who is a free agent now, and another player where you really need to look at his game-by-game to get a feel for how the season went and how he ended up at number 83 on the year. The dude ended up at number 83 because Marc Gasol missed 20, sorry, 30 ball games this season. Serge averaged 16 points, 8 and change rebounds, less than a block a game in 27-plus minutes per ball game. I mean, that number has completely fallen off. He was still at 1.4 last year. This season, it wasn't close. If Marc Gasol doesn't get hurt, 
I don't think Ibaka makes the top 100. Look at the beginning of this season. Marcus Ole got hurt on December 16th. Serge Ibaka cleared 25 minutes two times before Marcus Ole got hurt. Two times. He was not inside the top 100. He had a total of, I believe, I'm going to try to do the math very quickly here, I believe he had a total of 16 blocks during the first two months of the season. That ain't great. That's, again, far less than one block per game. Then Gasol got hurt. Ibaka immediately started playing 30 minutes a game. And he really started racking up the points and rebounds at that point. And even though the blocks still weren't there, he was scoring at such a high clip and a good percentage, 52% from the field, that he was able to make up for some of the other stuff. I'm inclined to believe that no one's given this dude a big contract and playing him 28 to 30 minutes a game. I, I just, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm guessing improperly on this one. He has, for, on the defensive side in particular, he's aged incredibly fast. He's still only 31, so it seems like there ought to be a little bit of lift left in those legs. So I'm inclined... I mean, if I didn't know exactly how things went this year, maybe this is one of those situations where I'd almost be better off knowing less about a player's season. But we know a lot about Serge Ibaka's season. We watched every damn game. This is how we operate. We, we run numbers, and then we have eye test stuff. And the eye test this year showed that he wasn't really concerned with blocking shots on defense. It just it wasn't there anymore. He was, uh, it, it just, it, he was more positional defensively than shot blocky defensively so if I had seen his numbers this year and I didn't watch any of his games I'd say wow you know 16 and 8 with over a three-pointer and 52 percent from the field like this this feels like a pretty good season and the 0.8 blocks being so far off of his career mark well maybe I'd say perhaps that's due to bounce back a little bit and maybe there's a team where it does you know, maybe there's uh, he goes to a spot where someone asks him to go fly around blocking shots again. I, I guess that's a possibility, but I watched all these games, and he just wasn't, it wasn't part of his game plan on defense anymore. But again, you know, we're talking about minutes and usage equating to value, so if he goes someplace where he's going to get a starter's job, you probably can draft him in that same neck of the woods in that same 80, 90, 100 range, and you'd be just fine doing so. Because if he's on the floor a bunch, he's going to do something, even if it's not shot blocking anymore. If he's going someplace and you're like, oh, well, you know, this is a guy who can block a bunch of shots and pile up value quickly, he's just not that guy anymore. There is upside there if he's going to be playing. If shot blocking comes back a little bit and the other stuff stays good, well, then there's room to improve upon top 80, which is where he was this year. Uh, but even if it doesn't, let's assume the shot blocking doesn't come back, and that's where you make your calls for next season. OG Ananobi had a super weird year, didn't he? <laughs> that's probably the only way. OG Ananobi got off to a ridiculously hot start this year, coasting along at like a top 30 clip for the first few weeks of the year. You can go back and look at that game log as well. Uh, dude had, what, nine blocks in his first four games, six steals and nine blocks right out of the shoot. He had about a month where he was playing some pretty damn good basketball, maybe a month and a half, and then things turned real quiet from early, right around like 
but actually pretty close to the time that Marcus Gasol went down. Uh, Ananobi had a couple of games blended in there that were pretty good, and then he didn't really resurface again until February. He had that five-steal game in early February, and that kind of catapulted him into about a one-month stretch of good basketball. His minutes also trended back up again, and it didn't really seem like it ran in conjunction with almost anything besides the All-Star break. This was a guy who seemingly got crushed by the dog days of an NBA season. And I suppose we could trace that back to the idea that he really, his body hadn't had this kind of punishment before. Yes, he played 74 games his first year in the NBA. Yes, he played 67 games last year, so he missed a few. But, but, okay, you say, well, he basically made it through most of an NBA season. Yeah, but he only played 20 minutes a game the last two years. This is the first season where he was expected to play big starters minutes. He was the he was the defensive guy. He was the one getting worn down by other teams' best wing players night in and night out. Everything just required more. He was on the floor more. More shots. More rebounds. More steals. More blocks. All of it went up the way that you'd want. And then he ran out of gas. For that reason... And I really would have loved to seen him finish this year because it looked like he was actually on pace to have a pretty good conclusion to his season. Some, by the way, of his uh, jumps took place when Norman Powell was out, but not all of them. And there are enough guys coming off the books on this Raptors team where I don't think you have to worry about playing time for the people that remain, right? So OG Ananobi, he's with the team for at least two more years. Uh, sorry, at least one more year, and then he has a then he's a restricted free agent the following year. So he's going to be a part of whatever they're doing this coming year. Serge, free agent. Gasol, free agent. And you say, well, how do those guys actually correspond? Well, if, if they lose all their big men, other guys are just going to have to slide up. Everything that opens up is something for someone. Serge played 28 minutes a game. Gasol played 27 minutes a game. I, I know these guys didn't play every single night, but... Even if it's just a couple of minutes, that covers whatever might have happened, you know, had Norman Powell been healthy all year or Pascal Siakam been healthy all year. We probably see more Chris Boucher next year, actually. I don't know if it's going to be enough. We have to wait and see if they bring in anybody else to play a big man spot. If they don't, he might actually be worth drafting. But we'll get to him at the very end of this Raptors coverage today. I think OG Ananobi, who finished at number 72 in nine category leagues, partially because he had only 1.2 turnovers, very good steals numbers, good field goal percent this year. That made a nice step forward. Good field goal percent, good steals, good turnovers, league average in blocks, which is good to get from your small forward. You'll take league average in blocks from your small forward. A little sub-average in assists. That wasn't really part of his game. Slightly below league average in rebounding and three-pointers and, and fairly... Uh, below league average in scoring. His free throw shooting was awful, but he basically didn't take any, so that one also just slightly below league average. This is another guy where, we've talked about it before, if you're pretty close to league average in most everything, and then for him, he was uh, medium sub-average in points and assists, and he was well above average in steals and sort of reasonably above average in turnovers, that cancels each other out in some degree. League average, 72. Being league average is good. The weird It's a weird theme that we've picked up and run with here. 
But I think OG Ananobi could actually be a pretty decent value next year. I, I don't think people are going to be leaping on him the way that perhaps they should be. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up with a bunch of him on our fantasy teams. But we'll wait and see. I might say the same thing for a guy like Norman Powell, although I think he probably drew more attention this year because, unlike Ananobi, basically every time that Powell was healthy, he was scoring a bunch. Ananobi averaged a little bit under 11 points a game. Norman Powell averaged 16.5 points per game. That's a big, big difference. Yes, he was ranked two rounds ahead. I mean, it makes a difference. Norman Powell's on contract for next year, and then as a player option for the year after that, he seems like he's played his way into a bigger role going forward for this team. I don't have a clue where this dude is going to get drafted. Not the first flying clue. His field goal percent and free throw percent were both fantastic. You guys know how much I love dudes that are good in both percentages, and he was good in steals. He knocks out three of my four favorite roto categories. Steals, blocks, both percentages. I think they're the easiest things to win in Roto Leagues because people don't pay enough attention to them. And then the fact that he was scoring 16 and change points and hitting two three-pointers, that's just kind of gravy. He's not a big rebounder. He's not a big assist guy. I don't think that's changing anytime soon. He's not going to block any shots. You have to assume that those three categories are going to be slight uh, deterrents. But, I, I mean, the fact that he played 29 minutes a game, and some of his, his big leap this year came when Freddie Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry went down. He had this opportunity, and he jumped on it. But, again, guys are coming off contract. There's also the possibility, and I know the Raptors extended Kyle Lowry, which was sort of like the, hey, he's our guy kind of thing. Let's just keep him around because he's the kind of the face of the franchise right now. He could get traded next year. He's on that $30 million contract for one more season. He could get moved, and then things really open up in Toronto. But I think even if he doesn't get moved, you'll see plenty of a Norman Powell at small forward, Ananobi power forward, Pascal Siakam center lineups next year, where the Raptors will have plenty of opportunity for those main five guys. The guys that are on contract, Lowry, Van Vliet, Siakam, Powell, and Anobi, those guys are basically shoe-ins to play 30 minutes plus, and fantasy value just goes hand-in-hand. I don't think they bring back Gasol or Ibaka. I'd be a little bit surprised. I mean, maybe maybe they surprise me, but I don't see the reason to do so. They're right on the cusp of going relatively young here, and I don't... I don't think they feel they have the pieces to make a championship run. I think they'll still be better than people expect again next season because their top guys are better than people realize. But it's not really time to bring in crusty old veterans to put with all these young dudes yet. If you want, you can get a big guy. You're not a big man. like a. am talking about like a big name, but this isn't really the offseason for that anyway. You probably see Toronto stay young this year, stay cheap, and then go for one of the big free agents next offseason. That would obviously change usage quite a bit. But right now, there's plenty. And then talking about the top three guys, I don't know that we have to go into much detail. The reason I saved them for last is because I thought the more interesting stories on this team were, what did Gasol do? What did Ibaka do? They're both free agents. What did Aninobi do? And he's not a free agent. What did Norman Powell do in a big breakout campaign, but he was hurt so much? I don't know where Norman Powell gets drafted. I think he'll have a good year. I don't know where Ananobi gets drafted. I think he'll be a value. Siakam, Van Vliet, Kyle Lowry, I, I, 
Siakam almost definitely won't be a value. He was drafted ahead of where he ended up this year, and he got hurt. Van Vliet, after a monster campaign that saw him post top 25 numbers after getting drafted in the 80-90-100 range, he's going to go a lot sooner. I don't think he'll get drafted at 25, though. I'd be pretty surprised if people were like, all right, well, that's where he was, so that's where I'll take him. But he's a guy that is more than likely a relatively safe guard, provided he can stay healthy. And then Kyle Lowry, perennially underdrafted and way underdrafted this year because everybody forgot how much he can do when Kawhi Leonard wasn't around. So these top guys are pretty easy to handicap. Siakam, probably a tiny bit overdrafted. Van Fleet, he'll probably be maybe a hair overdrafted or perhaps accurately drafted. And then Kyle Lowry's probably going to get underdrafted again. We don't even really need to get into what they did on the court this year. It's about value at this point. And they all were good, and they all played a ton of minutes, and they all missed games because they were intermittently hurt this year. And all we care about is where they're probably going to get drafted next season and if we can squeeze some value out of them. The one name I do want to mention before we wrap up the Raptors, ha, see what I did there, is Chris Boucher, who played 55 games this year, generally as a super low-minute backup and sometimes as a super low-minute double backup. Meaning, sometimes he was behind both Marc Gasol and Serge Ibaka, and he played five, six minutes a game. Sometimes he was behind only one of them, and he played like 13 or 14 minutes per game, and sometimes they were both out, and he actually got to play 20-some-odd minutes a game. Everybody knows that when he played 20 minutes, he was cool. It's a fast ramp. He was number 223 this year in 13 minutes per game, with six boards, four and a half rebounds, and a block. But if you can isolate, and you can't do this, there really aren't any services that can that can do this other than us just going and looking at Boucher's game log. If you can basically just go and look at the games where he played 17 even or more minutes, but if you want to make it easier on yourself, the games where he played 19 or more minutes, and there were really just a handful of them. We'll go through them one by one because, damn it, we're on a podcast and we can do whatever the hell we want. Against the Lakers on November 10th, he played 24 minutes at 15-2 and two with two steals and three blocks. The very next night, in a loss at the Clippers, he played 22 minutes at 13-6 and six with a steal and two blocks. November 20th, against Orlando, he played 20 minutes, barely got over that threshold, but it counts 14-11 and 11 with a block. 25 and a half minutes in a blowout win over the Knicks, he had 13-12 and 12 with four assists. And a couple of three-pointers. No defensive stats in that one, but we'll forgive him. On December 22nd, he played 24 minutes against the Mavericks and had 21 uh, and 7 with two steals and four blocks. Two games later, on Christmas Day, he got hot against the Celtics, 24 and 6 with two blocks. Did I say 19 minutes or did I say 20 minutes was our threshold? Let's make it 20. It's easier to find. Next time he played 20 minutes wasn't until February 2nd. He had 24 minutes against Chicago. That was a blowout, 15-5 and five with an assist. And finally, uh, a couple games before the league shut down, March the 3rd, he had 19-15, and 15, two steals and a block in 28 minutes of a win in Phoenix. So clearly, if this dude can get to the 20-minute threshold, he is a fantasy value. Can he get 20 minutes? If Toronto brings nobody back, the answer's probably yes. 
He's a young guy. I think they'd like to develop him. He played 13 minutes a game this year. A lot of that was because dudes were out. But if they don't bring Gasol or Ibaka back, their only other man they were playing in that sort of power forward center spatial thing was Rondé Hollis Jefferson, who, well, kind of stinks. Sorry. I know. I got in a fight with Brew about this, uh, not this year, but last year. It's one of the rare times that I actually think in an argument I won. He's beaten me like 19 out of 20 times, but I got one. And I'll never let him hear the end of it. Rondé's a free agent too, by the way. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they do bring him back on a cheap deal. But if I had to guess, if you're looking at next year, Toronto's got giant minutes for all their main guys, Ananobi, uh, Siakam. We're talking about the front court here. That's all we really care about. Ananobi, Siakam. Ananobi's probably playing 31, 32 minutes a game next year. Siakam's probably playing 36 minutes. So let's say Siakam's the starting center next year. And he's playing 36 minutes a game. There's going to be 12 backup center minutes. Those probably do go to Chris Boucher. Does he get any power forward minutes? Because I don't think Ananobi's playing any center. That would be that would be a lot to ask. But he probably will get some small forward minutes. So I'm guessing there's going to be plenty of power forward stuff to go around. Can Boucher slide down and play with Pascal Siakam is the question. If the answer is yes, and he can get another eight minutes somewhere else on the court, he's worth a flyer late in your draft. And I think because there's even the possibility he becomes one of those guys that you have to at least consider. The guys that we've been talking about lately, as you get to that 100 and beyond threshold where you're just hunting guys that can do stuff in shorter minutes, the Nerlens Noels, the Rashawn Holmeses, Boucher doesn't have quite that fantasy profile. You know, for Rashawn Holmes, the field goal and free throw percent, both monstrous, and he can rebound. For Noel, it's both defensive categories, big, huge field goal percent guy. Boucher doesn't quite have their upside where they can get it done in 18 minutes game. But 2021, if he can get to that threshold, it's worth a grab. Maybe you get him at 100 and he does finish in that 90 range. Maybe he doesn't, but I don't care because the other guys that are getting drafted in that area, as we've talked about, are often guys that just don't have any upside. The DJ Augustines of the world. So I would say, yeah, take a shot on him. But it has to be in the right spot. We can't be overpaying for these buzz guys. I got a bad feeling Boucher's going to get buzz going, buzz going into next year because he had so much buzz this year, and he wasn't even good. He's a classic case of the fantasy community getting way out in front, putting the cart way before the horse. Toronto was not willing to give that dude minutes. Remember this? I got yelled at by everyone on the internet when I said, don't pick up either Boucher or Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, because they both aren't going to be doing it. Neither of them is going to be doing enough. And everybody was like, shut up, Dan. Boucher's amazing. And then they both sucked. And then Siakam came back, and everybody forgot that it happened. But that was one we nailed. We nailed that one. And so it worries me a great deal that this offseason is going to have a ton of Boucher love, and he's going to be a hype train guy, and people are going to be taking him at 60 when that shouldn't be happening. But if he slides down into that next grouping of guys that have a little bit of buzz but not enough, and you can get him 95 or later, when you consider some of the other names that we've talked about, 
even in, in, in competitive leagues, that's the ones that I like to look at here. Guys that were drafted in that 95 and later range, there weren't that many obvious picks. You could make the argument you want to go a tiny bit later than that, like 105, 110. But beyond that, it just, there's so many low upside guys that get drafted by teams. You might as well take a shot on someone that, who knows, maybe they pop off, maybe someone gets hurt. I don't know. And those are your Toronto Raptors, and that is your Thursday edition of Fantasy NBA Today. We'll wrap it up tomorrow. Any more NBA news? Obviously. You know, things are happening every day. We might as well talk about it. Hey, while you got a minute this afternoon, why not check out what's going on over at HoopBall? The latest episode of the HoopBall expansion draft was last night. You can check out the replay of that. It's available over at hoop-ball.com and via the HoopBall media YouTube page. Steve breaking down the Lakers in the latest fantasy snapshot over at hoop-ball.com. That's available there as well. You can follow at HoopBallFantasy and find out all of these things as they are going. Guys just doing a wonderful job of keeping things afloat. We'll actually talk to Steve uh, on this podcast. That'll be coming up next week on the show. So stay tuned for that. And again, one more show this week. That'll be tomorrow. We'll probably spend it on our third team from the Atlantic Division, but no promises. And that's the last thing I'm going to say because, damn it, my allergies are killing me today, and I'm going to go blow my nose. Have a great Thursday, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.